Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson, Podcast Mike here, introducing this week's guest. It is Tosh Greenslade. You may be familiar with Tosh's work on Sean McAuliffe's show, Mad as Hell. He is an actor, author, and voiceover artist. And as he speaks about in this episode, he also published a satirical novel, The ScoMo Diaries, uh, in 2020. So be sure to check that out. Check out his work on Sean McAuliffe's Mad as Hell. We've had Sean McAuliffe on the podcast in the past twice. So go and check out his episode. Scroll up in your feed. There's heaps of great episodes there. Uh, We've also had Michelle Brazier, who is a cast member on Mad as Hell. So definitely go and check them out. If you want to support Willosophy, patreon.com slash Willosophy for as little as a dollar a month, you get the episodes a day early and ad free. Uh, as well as that, you can go to Instagram, Willosophy Pod, and check out all of the guest portraits done by our artist, James Fosdyke, and twitter.com slash Willosophy Pod. Be a part of the conversation and let us know what you thought of the episodes. Tag us in your tweets. And yeah, without further ado, I'll pass it on to Will Anderson and Tosh Greenslade. Enjoy. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, and this is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So, who are you? Uh, hello, I'm the little fat one off Mad as Hell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, okay, wait, all right. That you'll need to provide more information. You need to at least say your name at some stage in this answer. Well, not re- if anybody. Well, no, if it, it, it's, it's in the title of the podcast. No, my name's Tosh Greenslade. Um, and I'm on, yes, I'm on Sean McCullough's Mad as Hell. That's probably, if, if anyone does know me, that would be where they know me from. Not, not as author of the cult hit, The ScoMo Diaries? <laughs> I wouldn't call it a cult hit. <laughs> I would call it uh, an abject failure. <laughs> no, it sold, it sold okay, but not enough to write a second book, which now, I, now that things are getting worse and yeah. worse, I'm like, oh, I wish... I wish I was still writing that. But at the same time, earlier this year, because I've got a, a six-month-old son, earlier this year when they said no, I was kind of like, oh, good. <laughs> that's, that's good. I was dis- It was a weird combination of disappointment and relief because, yeah, I, I don't know if my brain would have been able to handle writing a book again. Uh, you probably haven't se- had the chance to see this. It's just come out and it might not even be something that you would search out yourself. But there's a comedian called Bo Burnham. And he's oh, yeah. one of the greatest comedians in the world, in my opinion. Like, it was a teenage YouTube star who was, like, by the age of 30, gone on this progression through being this sort of, you know, Justin Bieber-esque, like, comedian of the internet to being one of the most brilliantly inventive, you know, musical comedians who's also an incredible filmmaker and, like, you know, really has these incredible personal and dark themes to his show. Anyway, I watched his new special Inside last night uh, for the first time, but certainly not the last time. It's one of the most compelling pieces of comedy work I've seen since probably Nanette. It's like, for me, it's the next genre and generation defining piece of like comedic art that has been presented in that long form special. We watched half of it um, until the baby started crying and then we had to go to bed. (laughs) Oh, I mean, half is probably the right amount to watch in one go because I had to stop it. Yeah, the other half will be tonight. I had to stop it two or three times because I was just so overwhelmed 
overwhelmed by what I was experiencing. But one of the themes of the show is, so he's like locked in this basically, the conceit is he's locked in this small room for, you know, the entire COVID lockdown experience. And you gradually see his mental health just completely disintegrate as he's decided to completely make this special from start to finish. And he films it all, you know, records it all, sings it all, you know, does every single aspect of this piece of communication. But it becomes as much about him trying to find a full stop and finish the show. Like it was meant to be six months. It was meant to be a 60-minute show. And you've probably watched what it was meant to be. But (laughs) it is... So much more than that, because in a way, the lockdown didn't finish. So how did he know when to finish? And I think it must have been the same, the challenge with the ScoMo Diaries, which is when you're writing a piece of satire about something that is still happening, how do you decide when to finish and like go, this is this is the ScoMo Diaries? Yeah, well, I cut it off at 18 months. Um there was there was a sort of a nice little period right before COVID started because I was writing it during COVID. Well, I, I started it before COVID and I was like, I can't write a book and do the show at the same time. And then COVID hit and everything except for the show got cancelled and I was like, I can easily write a book. <laughs> My schedule has cleared up. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I was like, oh, okay. It, about, I reckon, April, I realised that if I did 18 months, that sort of starts right. Things are starting to happen in the rest of the world, but it hasn't really come to Australia yet. And I, I basically set it up for a sequel, which I never got. Um, <laughs> which is, I was hoping they would just give me more money to write more. Ironically, but, you know. unlike the real ScoMo, who no one really expected was going to get a sequel and got a very unexpected sequel and might get like a third in the series as well. Well, that's the, the thing. I think he's just going to keep getting voted back in. I think that the, the book kind of ends with him going, oh, Anthony Albanese is basically copying all of my stuff. <laughs> he's not providing any kind of a challenge. He gets bored and decides to stop writing the book. And he said, if he gets a better challenger, I'm giving away the end of the book. It doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not really the kind of, you can, the, the, the way I've written it, it's basically just a series of burns. That's, that's it's a roast book. And so you can pick it up and just flick to a page and then Google that date which is what I did to write it, um, and and go, oh, there's that date, there's the news stories about it, here's what he did, there's just a bunch of insults about that day. That's interesting to me because I read the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm part of a very select club, but I read the yeah. book. <laughs> Unfortunately, if you did not buy the book, you sent me a copy of the book, but I did read oh, yeah. it. look, hey. And I found it, like, incredibly readable, Super funny. And I did wonder at the time how you constructed it. I was wondering if you had for all those days been taking notes on each of those days. But the way you've explained it makes a lot more sense. No, you just the went back and Googled what the happened internet that does day. That for you. <laughs> that's the worrying thing. If you're if you're in the public eye, that's there forever. If anybody wants to go back and find out what you were doing on a specific day, they can do it. I mean, okay, so you write this book. Why, why did you want to write it in the first place? What was it about ScoMo in particular that you found funny? I was, well, I was, given, the, I was given the idea <laughs> for the book and they went, somebody from Penguin, uh, my, my uh, publisher, Justin, basically sent me a DM on Twitter, which I don't normally go into because there's normally just 
erect penises in my DMs. Something about... <laughs> I don't know if I'm bait, but something wow, about my I face... I feel like you might be. It's like middle-aged men are just like, I could fuck that. Yeah. And then they You're making me hard as hell. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I did. I don't know why, but I went into them. I do. I dip into them occasionally just to see what's there. And it's usually just like, can you get me in touch with Sean? I'm like, no. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so I, he said, oh, do you want to write this book? Do you want to write the secret diary of Scotty from marketing? You know what I love about that? Can you get me in touch with Sean? Because I imagine that does actually happen occasionally. Can you get me in touch with Sean? Sean is also on Twitter, the very thing Mm. they're contacting you on. So you've you've almost got there, guys. Just hit up Sean to get in contact with Sean. Well, the most the most interactions I tend to get off of my tweets are ones where I've talked to Sean, and they're sort of they're jumping in, almost in front of me, just like, "Hey, look at me as well." And I'm like, "I know him in person. This isn't something where you can just sort of steal the, steal the spot. Like this is a conversation." No, I think that Sean has an aura that he doesn't talk to ordinary people, and you are like, you're our avatar. Yeah, we go, I'm well, the if, he's, uh, if he's joking with Tosh, then he can joke with us as well. What about me? Well, that's the other thing I get now because uh, I I tend to play quite low status, and I think because I grew up on British comedy, I grew up on stuff that is inspired by British comedy. So, like Full Frontal, Macarthur Program, all that kind of stuff. There's an element of low status in in a lot of that, and that's where I kind of tend to to play especially on the show Sean just insults me but from that strangers are just like oh well that's fine I'm I'm friends with him as well it's like if you if you sort of walked up to a group of friends that were all ripping on each other and just went oh yeah that guy's fat you're just like who are you go away that's not that's not appropriate behavior Um, It's funny. Okay, so this will seem like a weird sort of detour just quickly, but uh, it's just something that's top of my mind. So it's not really directed at you, but I'm going to talk about it anyway, which Mm -hmm. is you've done something that I do or have done in the past. I was very self-deprecating about my own body. My body's never been, you know, my great strength. And most of the time I'm, you know, ripping on how it lets me down. And I was like a chubby kid. So I always used to refer to myself as like, you know, being overweight or whatever. And you you talked about being, you know, the, the fat one from McAuliffe. But yes. like, how do you feel about in the year 2021, us talking about people's body shapes in relation to political and general news satire because back when we were doing glass house or good news week like the jokes would always be you know john howard looks like mr sheen you know it was very much about their physical appearance whereas do you think we're at a point now where we're we certainly feel like we're in a transition period but are we beyond the point where we take someone's personal appearance into like our comedy at all or how do you deal with that like do you have any opinions around where that all sits I don't know. I will. I feel like I just made fun of everyone's appearance in the book, so yeah. I can't well, I really mean, turn that's around and I'm, say. I'm interested in what, like, what that choice was, or where your line is, or you know, why you think it's appropriate or not appropriate. I'm, like I said, this is not me going. Hey, oh, no. I read the book, and here's, here's my problem <laughs> with it. It's more something that I've been wrestling with myself, and I thought you'd be a good person to talk to about it. Yeah, I don't know. I. I... <sighs> It's something I probably would have to look into deeper to to come up with a real uh, a real opinion on it. I kind of go, I don't know if you 
if you're the kind of person who wants to run the country, I think there's something slightly psychotic about that. Right. It, like anybody that gets into politics with the eye to be the prime minister, I'm like, yeah. you're insane. Who who wakes up and goes, that whole country, I could be the boss of that. Like that's bizarre. Somebody has to do it, obviously. We need something. But I think th- that kind of person deserves all the, the stain and ridicule you could heap upon them. But yeah, I don't know. I, it, it is, it is a, it's probably the final... Uh, the, the, I don't know, the, it the, is the so last true, thing. though, isn't it? Like the level of arrogance to think, like I can't even handle my own shit. If twenty twenty oh, yeah. taught me anything, that's my relatively successful life is painting over a lot of massive fucking cracks, and <laughs> I am an absolute disaster zone. Like the idea that I need to inflict that on anybody else. That I'm like this. This model seems to be working so well at home. I'm going to take this on the road. Is exactly. Bizarre. Bizarre. But, but yeah, in terms of making fun of their physical appearance, I don't know. I can't, I do it. I, de- I definitely do it. Um, I made jokes about, yeah, I said that Peter Dutton was stitched together. Out of, oh, no, he lives in a nest stitched together from pieces of rotting meat. Um, <laughs> I mean. And, I, and, I kinda, and we, we make fun of his appearance. A, on the, Like, I play a, yeah. a Dutton-esque character, and it's just about stripping the eyebrows and all of the features <laughs> off my face and then playing a horror movie character. That's... Yeah, I'd, I... I guess if your physicality is a manifestation of your personality, right? I think that's what you're talking about there. That, Like, your characterization of Dutton isn't just like, hey, he looks like a potato or whatever. It is taking how he looks in real life and what his personal and political opinions about life are and then combining them into a grotesque... Well, actually, some might argue not even as grotesque as the real thing version yeah. of Peter Dutton. Well, here's the thing about Dutton. This, is, this worried me as well. When I was doing the initial press for the book, somebody that works extensively in Canberra said to me, oh, Dutton will probably like this because he's got a really good sense of humour. And oh. I was like, no, don't tell me that ever. I, don't, I want him to read it and go, oh, I'm a terrible person. <laughs> that's, that's what I want to get out of that. Not him to go yeah good jokes that Can make I, me feel ill to humanize so him it's i mean this is the problem with meeting people also like i've done commercial radio which means that those sort of people your prime ministers and your peter duttons and all those sort of people in fact i was on a radio show where peter dutton announced you know basically that he was going to try to roll turnbull and then that's when scomo became prime minister all, all came out of an interview we right. were doing with peter dutton so like i think in some ways we at least prevented peter dutton from becoming prime minister of australia <laughs> By allowing him to speak to the public. But it was... Like, of course, when you meet these people in real life, most people are reasonably pleasant, like, if you're just, like, having small chat with them. But what I never expected, but am quietly amused by was when they walked in the room, they already knew that I would not like them. Like, you know, they would always lead with some comment about, I don't expect to get a good time from you or whatever. And I was like, oh, good. Well, at least you're aware. (laughs) At least this isn't going to come as a surprise to you at some stage in this interview. Let's start this off. I think you're a cock. You Uh, want me to like you. So, uh, okay, so why did you find yourself in the world of political comedy? Because, like, how, you know, um, Mad as Hell, obviously the ScoMo Diaries, like, it is a certain 
world of like political satire, political comedy, but you talked about being influenced more by sketch comedy shows, more straighter sketch comedy shows. So how did you find yourself where you are? Tell us a little bit about the story before you were on uh, Mad as Hell and people started to get to know who you were. So I, I was, so I grew up watching McAuliffe and like McAuliffe program, Full Frontal, and then a bunch of British stuff like Bottom and anything Rick Mayall had done. All of that sort of stuff was where I sat as a kid and as a teenager. And like in, in I think I was year nine or 10, um, I grew up in Ballarat. My mum drove me and two friends down to Elstonwick Studios to watch McCarla program get filmed in person. And then it was the best night of my life. And then I, I went to, uh, to university for a science degree which i did half of because i was like oh i need a fallback plan <laughs> just because i always wanted yeah. to be an actor like i can't i can't actually remember ever wanting to be anything other than an actor but i thought oh just in case it doesn't work out i should have something that i can go back to and i got halfway through it and i was like well i would probably rather be dead than fall back to this so let's just have a, i don't know suicide as a fallback plan <laughs> Not really, but, you know, horrific. Just hated it. Um, so I dropped out, went to drama school. Um, and in second year of that, Francis Greenslade directed a, uh, a play that we were doing. Um, not related at all. We've just got the same last name. Um, and now his mother has moved to Ballarat from Adelaide and made friends with my parents. But anyway, so that happened. Then I got out of drama school, spent about two years not really doing a lot. Well, the second year I did a lot of theatre. Uh, first year I did nothing. I sat on the couch and waited for the phone to ring, which it doesn't, uh, and it still doesn't. Um, but then the phone did ring at the end of the second year, um, and they're like, oh, Sean McAuliffe wants you to audition for his new show, which was like my brain sort of started to leak out of my eyes. Um, but it feels like, where, where, where did he find out about you? Francis recommended me. So Francis I mean, this had, feels like this is a reverse Highlander situation because nobody yes. hears of Green Slades at all. And it no. feels like Francis has come in like Sean Connery style, like to find your young Highlander <laughs> to like, he's like, I've got to find all the other. No, I feel like it's the opposite. It's like, you collect know, them. collect Green Slades and like elevate their careers. I think there was an element of that as well. I think he did go, oh, that's a name. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> threw my name up. He threw up a bunch of other names as well um, that weren't Green Slades. Yeah. Rebecca Greenslade. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Jeremy Greenslade. So... I did the audition and when I got the scripts, I just sort of knew how to read them. So I think uh -huh. like, cause the way I look at comedy, comedy is basically just music. Like it's all beats and, and mm. rhythms and it, it is music. And so I, I very much understood the music, the musical style that that was written in because I'd grown up on it. Um, and that's sort of what I've been playing my whole life when I've been performing. And so when I did it, Sean has said to me since that I was sort of the only one that they auditioned for my part because there's like the young person part then there was the middle person part and then there was so for me he said I was the only one who understood how to do it and I was like yeah well that's so I'm not necessarily better than everybody else I was just the only one who played that style of music is that um, not the definition of being better I mean like in that for that job for that yeah. one job I think right. of the people they auditioned <laughs> I was the, the only one who could do that specific job but in terms of being better actors, I'm sure... Well, I, I know that people I auditioned against have gotten much bigger jobs and, and beaten me for much bigger roles later on down the track. 
Um, but as an example of, I guess, what I was joking about is that surely all it is is your facility to fulfill your role on whatever it is that you're doing. Like, well, yeah. Yeah, like the person who does a whole bunch of stunts, Tom Cruise style, probably not as necessary on the Mad as Hell set as they are on Mission Impossible and vice I wonder, versa. I do think Tom Cruise would be good on our show, though. Yeah. I think he's really good. I, I feel like really he also actor. might... Well, you know that, I mean, that, what is it? Is it Tropic Thunder where he plays that, like, yeah. you know, kind of movie producer? And you're always like, this is super funny. I wonder mm. if he knows how super funny this is or they've just been able to get him in the right mood and position to be super funny. Yeah, I wonder. He he was surrounded by a lot of people that did that style yeah. of, like, on the set as well. He, he just would have... I feel like he would have absorbed a lot of it via osmosis. Because mm. I think, yeah, he is a very good actor. I think he's insane. Mm. But I think he's a very good actor that people people look at his insanity and go, oh, he's shit. He's terrible. It's like, no, no, he's actually really good at what he does. Like probably better than most people at what he does. And so I wonder if he had have applied himself to something different, if he would be as good at that or, or not. But anyway, back back to back to me instead of Tom Cruise. I mean, he's managed in his lifetime to become, you know, perhaps the biggest movie star of his generation, and also the unofficial second in charge of a major religion. So, yeah. like, he's that's not an accident. No, I couldn't do that. If I joined Scientology, I would just be in one of those detention camps, getting starved. <laughs> I'd find I mean, out about the brain aliens and they and I'd die. <laughs> uh, okay, so you get this job. What's what's your life like when you get this job? Because like this is like for for what you've described, this is a dream gig, and yeah. I understand. I at least have some insight. Um, but I like when I did, first did Good News Week, which was kind of the first big TV thing that I did. That you know was yeah, I'm there with like Paul McDermott from the Doug Anthony All Stars and Mikey Robbins from Triple J Breakfast, and like these these people that I had grown up watching on TV, and the producers Ted Robinson who produced the big gig, which was like this iconic show for me. And I remember how, how overwhelming that excitement was, and that desire to want to perform but also being kind of overwhelmed by the fact that you're suddenly sitting on a panel with people that you used to watch on the TV and I'd been doing stand-up for four or five years you're really going from you you don't have that you've just really suddenly just landed yourself in this teen dream scenario what just talk me through what the emotions around that were like I so I was working in a call center at the time, and then I kept working in the call center afterwards as well, which is terrible because you have to say your name at the start of the call. (laughs) Well, it's lucky you don't have a distinctive name in any way. Yeah, and then like, and look, not not enough people. I don't think there's a huge amount of crossover. So it was a call center for Foxtel, so I don't think there's a huge amount of crossover between people that call up Foxtel and people that watch. Sean McAuliffe on the ABC. I don't know. I might, I might be being unfair there, but I don't think there's a... I think uh, based on the evidence, I would get recognised by name maybe once a month, but that would be the most soul-crushing thing that could yeah. possibly That'd happen. That'd be somebody going, I watched an episode of Mad as Hell and I'm never watching the ABC again. I want to yeah. sign up to Foxtel. So, yeah, that, it's basically it was, it was a combination of as much excitement as you could put into a person and as much imposter syndrome as you could put into a person just butting heads constantly because it was like okay so now i've got 
I've got the number one job off the t- off my list of, of dream jobs. That's that's the thing. That's the top. But right. it's sort of it's a bit of a. I often wonder if if it's the result of like one of those monkey claw wishes where there's a it's like okay you can you you do get the the top job off your list but also no one else really wants to work with you ever again and so you start looking at things being like well i wonder if i'll get another job out of this and it's like no no you will not you will not get any other work on any other comedy program you will not sort of yeah it's this weird thing where i go oh maybe i could audition for that and they're like no no that's okay we don't want you which is bizarre to i and and at the same time i've got Sean McAuliffe, childhood comedy hero, saying, oh, you're doing the best work of your career. And then I'm going out and spending a year not working or working in a call center or driving Ubers for over the Christmas break because I, I need to get across the line to that next. And now, like in the last few years, now I just write for quiz shows and that, that <laughs> keeps me alive. Um, but yeah, it's this thing where I just sort of... I, it's either Sean is wrong and I'm terrible or Sean is lying and I don't know why he would lie uh, or Sean is right and I'm doing very good work but people just look at me and go, yeah, but I don't like you as a person. That's the thing that, that, that I don't, that I, that I grapple with. I, I'm going to offer a, a fourth if mm-hmm. I may. So I think that one of the so as a person who puts together shows, mm. um, I'm, I'm working on a project at the moment that so ordinarily with Gruen, obviously we have a bit of a free hit, you know, apart from maybe like a couple of segments on Sunrise or on a weekend, you know, news program. You're not seeing a lot of advertising people all over the television. So when it comes to booking guests or people to be on the show, we can have a unique take on who those guests are. Um, if you're doing a more traditional comedy style program, there are people who are just brilliant at doing those sort of shows and you get to see regular faces whether they be on, you know, Win the Week, which is, you know, Craig Rewcastle and Alex Lee's new show on the ABC or whether it be on Have You Been Paying Attention or whether it's on, you know, it used to be on the panel or Good News Week. You would just see familiar faces. One of, I think, the great appeals of Mad as Hell is Sean creates a world filled with people that you aren't seeing that much on other things. So... It happens like it's even like Stephen Hall's one of the you know most brilliant comedic actors going around, like just so funny. But like that entire cast is populated by people who absolutely understand what is trying to be achieved on Mad as Hell, and you don't really see a lot of them. You don't go, oh, that's Kitty Flanagan, or you know, oh, oh, that's you know, um, you know, even like somebody who might be like Geraldine Hickey, someone who might be emerging. It is a unique crew of people making a show that is also very unique in tone and style. And I think people who aren't making something that good feel judged by it. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, I feel like, despite the fact that it might not be the reality that you're living from day to day, I think that just working with Sean and working on a show that good makes people feel 
It's like inviting somebody who lives in a really cool house over to your shitty share house. You're just like, <laughs> oh, we're not going to have enough knives and forks. We're just going to be embarrassed. He's going to be like, I'm, you're not as funny as Sean, are you, Larry Emder, or whatever. <laughs> I wouldn't mind going to a shitty house, though. I would love to. I would put it, I'll put it out there. I, I want to come to your shitty house <laughs> and sit on your ripped up couch. That's what I want to do, even if it's got piss in it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's this... I'm the only one, though, from the cast that doesn't work so much outside the out the outside the show. Mm. That's the thing. It's it's this weird thing where I've and I asked my agent. I'm like, do, do people not? Has somebody put a rumor out there that I'm like a white supremacist, or <laughs> or do we need to put a rumor out there that I'm a white supremacist I mean, to get it's on a big some market. of the commercials? Yeah, exactly. But do my vaccines work or something? Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 it's, I feel like I've been pounding my head against a wall for 10 years. But, you know. Okay, so let's... Ex- okay, that's interesting. Like, without wanting to, you know, pick apart your pain too much, but you've offered it mm. up, so let's talk about it. Because, <laughs> you know, we talked about the book perhaps not going, you know, as well as you would have liked to get a sequel for it. And mm. you're on this really popular show, but you feel like it's not quite translating outside of that. Is that... Where is your... Like, I mean, we've talked about it in a reasonably jokey and jocular fashion so far, but is there some sort of dark nights where that really genuinely does worry you? Oh, very much. Like, I think if if the show ended the way I see it, if, if the show was to end tomorrow, or at the end of this season, um, I don't think it is. I don't know if I'm talking out of school there, but I don't think it is. Yeah, that's a Daily Mail headline. If if people have stuck around for 30 minutes. I would love to be in the Daily Mail. Well, I think last week they cancelled the show like because you guys obviously had your audience pulled on the morning of the show and I think the Daily Mail reported that the whole show had had Yeah, they said the show had been shut down. We weren't filming it anymore and they said that we film it on Thursdays, which was the day after the episode had aired. Which is an amazing feat if that yeah, is the case. I don't think the ABC has the budget for a wormhole anymore after <laughs> all the is, cuts. This is the only way we can get ahead of the schedule. We've invested yeah. 90% of the budget in a wormhole. We rolled also, the dice and it turns it, out we it found up, one. We were literally on set as, as that article was published doing location shooting. So I was like, cool. Um, also, during the, the worst of the pandemic last year, we stayed on. Why are we cancelling it for the, for the mini snap lockdown? <laughs> uh, but yes, okay, so if the show went off air, the, when the show goes off air at the yeah. end of the year because Sean uh, is uh, leaving the ABC. Yes, I don't think I would work anymore. I think that would be the end for me. And I would, and I would stay around with, and I would stay around chip, like chipping away at it for a couple of years, I reckon. But I would also very much be like, okay, what can I do now? What, what's... What job can I do and be as happy as the as when I had the job that I grew up wanting to do? And I've been thinking about it recently. I'm like, okay, so what's, yeah, just in case, what am I going to do? Um, and I don't know. I wouldn't mind opening a wine bar. I want to open a natural wine bar that sells Japanese convenience store style fried chicken. That's that's my dream. Aside from that, but I I would need millions of dollars. So that's probably. I not was going to say, was there anything about the fact that like we just spent a year with you know small businesses and bars and restaurants going out of business <laughs> that made you think that wasn't the great fallback position? There's that, a gap in the market. There's half a science degree that could be finished. 
Yeah, I don't. No, I don't think I'm allowed to go back to that. I think it's been too long. I think it's lapsed. I think I would have to start again. Science and has changed since then. Yeah, I cannot be bothered. Uh, okay, but that's interesting to me because, like, I had periods last year, probably unnecessarily, you know, dark periods. But I think that a lot of people were affected by the circumstances, the unusual circumstances. And I'd had a year of work go away and my entire plans for what I thought I was going to be doing for the next couple of years had been, yeah, really changed. And it challenged myself. I was like, well, if I do need to get another job, what is it that I am qualified to do? And I thought about it a lot. And there was a few things that I thought that I'd be fine doing. But there wasn't a lot of great options. There certainly wasn't a lot of options that would, you know, like pay my mortgage and, you know, entitle me to the lifestyle I've been leading telling <laughs> dick jokes to strangers for 20 years. And I don't think any of them would be as much fun. So did you settle on uh, – out of that comes two choices. One is to go, well, no, fuck it. I'm in this thing now and I have this amazing job and I'm just going to double down on loving this, doing the best job I can possibly do in this and they just trust – that if I do great work with one of the greatest comedians of all time, that will inevitably lead to people recognizing who I am. And maybe it's just a slow burn at the moment, but I'm picking up a bit of momentum. And if I keep doing great work, regardless of, I mean, Sean's going to be doing mad as hell for the next decade, hopefully, hope you know, so. fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. really? I'll just have him on life support. You can, be, with like, the you can be like the Ray him back to life of mad as hell you know what I mean you know some people who just go no I'm a lifer why would I bother getting another job when I already have this job and this is a good job yeah I would never leave that's the other thing I would never leave it would have it would take a lot to make me not do the show well, um, can, that's a great thing about that structure, though, because as you said, they cast the young one, the middle one, the older one. Like, you could just graduate. Yeah, you, I, you, I'll definitely get move, replaced at some point. Right. You move out the middle and you just move up in the structure. Yeah. Kick Francis out because he's, <laughs> <next, laughs> he's the next one up. <laughs> that's Highlander. Literally yeah. cut his head off. <laughs> um, what was it? What have you learnt from working with Sean, and what has that sort of relationship been like? What can you remember the first time that you actually either met him or worked with him? Whichever of those two things is more memorable for you. It was at the first audition yeah. that I met him for the first time, and I just walked in, and, yeah, and shook his hand, and I was like, <laughs> um, and then it was. He <laughs> goes, him. I get that a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was him, Francis, and Ros Hammond in the in the room right literally the only other person that would have so if if Wayne Hope had have been there it would have been the original cast of McAuliffe program basically (laughs) and I was reading opposite Roz and that was the first time I met Roz as well Um, so that was basically just like stepping onto the set of the show I grew up watching and getting to do it with them which is insane but that, yeah, I, I, I feel like I should preface everything I've said as well in, in that I don't get any other work. I also get more work than a lot of actors. So that's, that's the other thing. So I, I can't really complain. Like I've done 13, well, this is the 13th season of a TV show. I've been on a TV show for 10 years. While there's part of me that's like, well, that should entitle me to at least an audition on, on like if they're doing another comedy show, at least. Yeah. I'm, I, I didn't even train as a comedy actor. I trained as a dramatic actor. I, I would very much like to do any acting, but I still get way more work than most people. 
Um, and if you add up all the money that I've been paid, it's a disgusting amount and I've spent it all, but it's a disgusting <laughs> amount. And I, I'm the only person from my graduating year of drama school, I'm the only person left doing it as well. So that's the other thing. I, I can't really sit there and go, oh, it's not fair because it's, it's not fair to everyone else that I've, that I've been the one. And I was sort of, I reckon I was probably middle of the class in terms of talent uh, of that drama school year. Um, and only one other person I think is still working from the first year um, and she's a, a Hollywood movie star but she left in second year so I don't count her when I, when I say I'm the only one left who was um, it? Can, I, can we say who it was? oh yeah Bella Heathcote she's, um, she just does yeah heaps of stuff She, I think she's back here now working on some big show I don't know Everyone, what it is everyone's here now everyone's yeah, here exactly that's, uh, yeah she was in LA for a long time and then yeah. I think LA and stopped existing and then all existing. of LA came yeah. to Australia mm-hmm. LA on the Gold Coast is now what's happening okay so yeah the first so, so the first time you actually work with him is it on like a like in front of a live audience and I'm mad as hell is that how it works no it was um, it was like because we do a, a week of location shooting and then we go into the studio right. the week after that and so the first thing I had to do Sean was seeing this bizarre thing he couldn't do it anymore <laughs> which I think if you go back through mad as hell there's probably quite a lot I think if you go back through any show that's been going for as long as we have you see things and you're like oh you can't do that. I was watching well, Arrested Development recently and I was like, Jesus changed. Christ. Yeah, exactly. And so, I think it's for the better. Yeah, but I, I society feel- has changed for the better. It's a ridiculous thing to expect that things we're reflecting the society of the time won't be in the oh, language sure. of the time. It Definitely. would be bizarre if you went back through the fact that in the last 10 years there's been incredible changes around, say, like, you know, same-sex relationships or mm. trans rights or understanding of Black Lives Matters or any, like, homophobic jokes. These sort of, like, things that are were part of the dialogue of the time. And if you went back through comedy as an art form and you were like, wow, like these things that everybody else in society was were doing and saying and talking about was never once reflected in the comedy <laughs> of the time. This is quite incredible. <laughs> but yeah, so we had to... Uh Sean was singing a song that uh, thank heavens for little girls uh, uh, and then the police roll up and I was one of the policemen and arrest him that like I think you probably could do it actually it's right. just people would go Ooh. someone's yeah <laughs> they, they, go, they go I mean it's a good point you're making but I don't know if it's a comedy piece <laughs> yeah um but yeah, so we had to roll up in the background in a police car and I was still on my pee plates and I, and I hadn't told anyone because I was 26. I got them way too late. Um, and I turned up and they're like, oh, you're going to be driving the car. And I was like, great. My first day here, I'm going to have to tell them to put pee plates on a police car and oh. ruin the shot. Pee is for police. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so they... Uh, they pushed the car. I, I didn't say anything. I was just like, I'm just not going to say anything. And then if things go terrible, it'll happen. And maybe I'll get away with it. But then they, <laughs> they just rolled the shot because they were like, oh, if you start the engine, it'll, uh, it'll pick up on the microphone. So it'll, it'll ruin it. Um, so instead, they just pushed it into shot. And I was like, okay, I'm not technically driving the car. <laughs> the car's not on. So I don't have to put a P plate on there. And then I left the handbrake on for the first shot. And they tried to push the car and it didn't move. And they had to reset. And it was a huge tracking shot with a crane. and every, oh, Not a crane. It was a, a dolly shot, I think. 
I think they I might mean, I think if you were going to well. get in trouble for not having your pee plates on, the whole impersonating a police officer would have also been added to yeah, it. Yeah, probably. Much more serious, I would have thought. But anyway, I fucked up the shot because I left the handbrake <laughs> on and they had to reset the whole thing. And they're like, why is the handbrake on? And I, I just put my head down. But after that, it was, it was fine. I was what very you, scared of everyone for, for a What have you learnt? Who, well, I mean, from uh, people are fascinated. I'm fascinated. I, I assume other people are fascinated by Sean in general, but what it's like to work with him. Like when you're in a scene with Sean, when you know, you're back and forth with somebody who's what, – what does that feel like? He's a, a powerhouse. Like you sort of – you are definitely working with a, a once in a generation talent when you're working with him like and you know it because there's little things that he does that i would never think to do or i could if i tried to do them they would be so deliberate and heavy-handed yeah. and so shit uh, and and you just see him effortlessly throw them in and they're just funny they're instantly funny and so yeah, there's sort of. I think I just pick up most things via osmosis with him. Like I think the entire book, because I've never written for Mad as Hell. I don't do any of the writing for it. People think that I do because they say my name on the show now. Um, but none of it's me. I'm just delivering the work of much better writers than myself. Um, but the book, I think, sort of fits in the world of Mad as Hell, just because I've been doing it for ten years and I couldn't not write that style. If when when I had to sit down and start writing, it's just that sort of stuff was coming out of me. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's more just the stuff that I'm not deliberately learning that I've just picked up and is just part of me now. But I think it was to an extent part of me anyway because I grew up with it. Uh, I'm interested in how it shapes your perception of the world. So you talked before. I think when we're on air, I'm pretty sure you mentioned this when yeah. we're on air about the fact that, uh, yeah, you're a father. And yes. um, when you've worked on a show like Mad as Hell for, you know, 10 years, like you are exposed to the news of the world and to a certain perspective about the world on a pretty regular basis throughout that time. So it's got to shape the way you view where we are as a, as a civilization. How do you think it's shaped you and where do you think we are? I think if you asked me that before the baby, it would be a very different answer. Because I, for a long time, I did not want kids at all. I was like, I would be a terrible father. The world is in the bin and I'm too lazy to push my son down the road in the shopping trolley and fight off cannibals. Um, but now I kind of can't help but have some level of hope. And because I've got a six-month-old son... And if I was waking up every day going, there's no way anything will ever get better. This is just going to get worse. Then I probably <laughs> wouldn't be a very good dad to him. Just every time he's happy, I'm like, ah, ah, ah. Um, so, yeah, I think if anything, having the baby has shaped how uh, I view the world more than anything um, in that I just kind of feel like it has to get better because there's no other options there is another option it's it's we keep going down the path we're on and the world is on fire for nine months of the year but i don't think yeah i think something will happen because i think the human race just survive they just get out of things um or they they work their way out of things because they are cockroaches 
there is an aspect of what you're saying that I hope, well, I'm, of course I hope is true. I, mm. As egotistical as, you know, I, I might be at my worst, like the idea that I want to be around for, you know, the, the final season of humanity is not something that I'm <laughs> interested in, you know? Like, I don't want it to be us that sees it all go down in flames. I'd prefer, if that's going to happen, that at least I was in, you know, yeah, the seasons that people look back on and go, I reckon that show was still okay then. There was a lot yeah. to recommend it back then. It got real bad after that, but it was still <laughs> not too bad at the time, um, which is a real genera- Generation X attitude to have about the world, I think. <laughs> but um, when you say hope, is your hope in people? Is your hope in science? Is your hope, like, how do you think... Where does the hope come from? I think it is it is in people and science because I, I think we do innovate our way out of problems. Um, and I think we always have. And I think that's also the problem that we've got now. But I hope that our innovation <laughs> just fucks things up for people in, I don't know, like 300 years. That'll yeah. be fine. They'll be like, oh, yeah, they managed to stop global warming. But the mole yeah. people came up and, and started <laughs> eating people's faces 300 years later. Well, I mean, we still have the, uh, by the way, I say this only jokingly, but the scenario that the vaccine does have some horrible, you know, side effect, like the idea that all the so-called sensible people, like myself, on the line to get vaccinated the minute I can get vaccinated on behalf of everybody, like... But if there was some sort of long-term side effect where suddenly everybody who took the vaccine became sterile, which means that the only people who can breed are the anti-vaxxers at this point. <laughs> like, that is... I think that is a late-season plot twist that no one saw coming. Yeah. But as somebody who grew up eating any food in the 90s, any kind of processed food, I feel like everyone's going to get stomach cancer in about five years from blue raspberry. Like that's there's there's nothing that I ate as a child that you can still get. <laughs> it's like okay, cool. Yeah, you, you like you know when you just see something surreptitiously surreptitiously disappear from the supermarket. Yeah, and there's no press around it, but then you're just like, why do I never see? dryer sheets anymore yeah and then like you google why is there no dryer sheets and they say oh because there's 90 percent of your lungs are microplastics from when you did the laundry once exactly so that's the thing i'm like oh, <laughs> I, I feel like i've done so much damage i've had how many have i had now two melanomas that were from getting burnt as a child and i'll probably get more i'll probably get sliced up for the rest of my life i hope that none of them are on my face but that's the best i can hope for really there and and catching them early that's i'm i'm happy i get six monthly skin checks full body skin checks and if they see something weird they cut it out and so far that's been good for me but there's so much shit that i can't undo from when I was a kid that to go, oh, you know what? I'm not going to get a vaccine because <laughs> something else bad might happen. It's like, yeah, chances are slimmer that something I do now will have terrible effects than anything I did as a child. Right. Yeah. It wasn't the vaccine, mate. It was all those meat pies, those mystery meat pies you <laughs> yeah. ate at the football when you were a exactly. kid that have really done you in. So... <clears throat> I ask people on this show whether they have a life philosophy of any kind. Do you have some sort of life philosophy, some guiding principle? I think I, I do, and it's bad and good at this. Like, depending on my mood, it's, uh-huh. <laughs> or depending on what I apply it to, it can be both bad and good. And that would just be that no one is thinking about you as much as you're thinking about yourself. <sighs> That's so true. 
And no one gives a fuck about you, really. No Your family cares. gives a fuck about you, but no kind one else of. really does. I mean, yeah. kind of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, But they'll get over it. Exactly. I mean, they might. They'll miss you and stuff, and it'll probably haunt them for a bit. But eventually, <laughs> sure. they'll just have to get on with shit. Sure, they will. Um, but yeah, that's the, the, so if I apply that to the industry and to my job, that no one gives a fuck about me, I'm like... That's not good. But if I apply it to things... So, when I was a kid, when I was in primary school, I very regularly... I was in a little group of friends that, and they would very regularly... Well, maybe... I don't know how regularly, but it's it's definitely damaged me as a human being. Uh, would just decide they don't like me anymore. And I would be cut off from the entire group and I'll just sort of wander around by myself for a couple of weeks at, at, at school with no friends. And it's like, okay, we hate you. You've got no friends. And so, and that happened at like a school camp as well. And so it's what, like, do you I had nowhere to be safe. Do you have what it was that like, was there some aspect or was it just kids choosing? I think it's kids. Like it's, it's kids pushing boundaries and testing things. Like I, I saw one of them, the, like the ringleader, like the, the main kid of the cool kid of the group uh, at Meredith a few years ago. And we had a beer, and he's a really nice guy. Like, really, yeah. <laughs> like I, and and I'm sure that I I would have bullied other. I know there's one kid that I saw when I was 18. And he wanted to punch me in the head. He was like, "You were a cunt to me at um in primary school." Yeah, you did. And I'm like, "Oh, cool." So I just passed that trauma on. Um, but well, I mean, firstly, I don't think that like there's any of us who would claim to have like because sometimes you wouldn't even know. Like sometimes, you know, you wouldn't have even meant to perhaps have been as mean as the other person oh, yeah. experienced it or whatever. Like well, you're when a kid I look back and, and he no says, shit. yeah, I, I wouldn't have even thought that I had been mean to him. Mm. And he was like, yeah, you did this to me. And I was like, oh, that didn't say in my memory, that's not that bad. Mm. Um, and but you, you take people take different things away from different experiences like and and you can't sort of minimize someone else's trauma no. especially if you've caused it and i and i apologize i'm like i'm really sorry and he was like i still want to punch you in the head i was like i'll, yeah. I'll probably run away then yeah. instead can we, yeah can we not <laughs> you know what that's fine for you to still want to let's yeah. just not it'll be better for each of us if you just keep wanting to and i I'm do and i that. do hope for him that he is sort of that he's gotten rid of that just for his own life. But like, and at the moment I'm trying to, yeah, get rid of this myself. Uh, but I constantly worry that people hate me and I think that people hate me. And I think that people in my friendship groups and people that I just meet yeah, don't right. like me. And, but they're not thinking about me. That's the thing. They don't, they probably don't have time to hate me because they've got all this other shit going on. So that's, yeah, that's, that's the philosophy. That's where it's good. People don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you enough to hate you. So stop thinking that you've done something that makes them not like you. Um, and if you, I, I apply that to my career as well. It's like, oh, if they're not thinking about you, that's not necessarily because they think you're shit. They might just have written a role for their friend that you would normally fill and they want their friend for that job. So there's, yeah, there's the, it, it's good and bad depending on my mood. Yeah, I, I, I dig that. That's a... I, I relate to that a lot, which mm. is I absolutely know it to be true. Like I think it, it and it's a good thing to remind yourself of, which is that most of the time 
you know, even if like, particularly if like you feel like one of your friends is plotting against you or like, so, I mean, maybe they are, I don't know. I don't know your individual circumstance, but most of the time, the reason that they haven't rung back is like they're, they're at the dentist or there's some other shit going on, or they just like are in a bad mood because of something else. And they just don't need to take a phone call right now. It's not like people aren't generally thinking about you anywhere near as much as you might imagine. And it's quite freeing to know that. Exactly. But I can also understand the, the darkness of that, which is, oh, yeah, I guess the one thing that I've always thought about comedy is that people don't really like me. And if you fall into the trap of thinking that people just like you, you start making bad comedy. People, yeah. like I've made, I managed to make a living in comedy because people have enjoyed some of the things I've made. But that's the relationship. They they yeah. like they like the almond croissants I make at my bakery. If I stop making the almond croissants, then eventually they're not just going to come in for the little bit of banter we have in the morning. It's I like, think that's a real trap for a lot of comedians that get very popular in that they're like, well, I'm funny, so anything I say is funny. And it's like, well, no, anything you work at and make funny is funny. And you're very good at doing that. But you can't just go up and say things in a funny voice or in a certain cadence and expect people to laugh at that because it's not necessarily... And it's, it happens a lot on commercial radio, I think, as, as you skyrocket. And then I think, yeah, I think a lot of people in commercial radio fall into that trap, but then realize it and then keep going up. So it's dangerous and i and i fall into it as well a lot because it's somebody yeah as somebody that people are like oh you're the funny one in in the group it's like well anything i say is comedy it's like no it's not it's just shit (laughs) (laughs) just talking shit yeah i must admit that i was like i understood early on like most of my friends aren't in the industry although like i have great friends in the industry but yeah the people i see regularly on the weekends the people whose you know kids birthdays i go to are mostly people who work outside the industry in different jobs and very early on it became aware to them that i was never going to be the funny one and we set that ground rule i i just love to listen like i am a good person to have at a barbecue because I have found a way in my life to turn my social anxiety into like originally, I think that's where the comedy came from. The idea that I felt uncomfortable in big groups and comedy was my way of dealing with that. And now it's about having conversations with people, like whatever it is. I had this incredible conversation with a friend of mine who's gone full QAnon, like anti-vax the other day. And it was such a good conversation, like 30 minutes of just like us not arguing at all, like really just exploring, you know, like, you know, what that person thought and why they thought what they thought. And for them, it was amazing too. I could tell because I could tell that every time they bring it up with someone else, they move on, you know, they go, oh, actually, I've got to go to the toilet or get a drink or whatever. And I was just like, no, 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 no. I'm just, I would like to explore this today. I would like you to be able to say what it is that you think and why you think it. And I would like to hear why that is. Well, that's, yeah, that's something that I think a lot of people don't do as well. And so I've got a, I've got a, an idea for a show that I'm pitching to the ABC, I think, hopefully soon. Um, I did pitch it and then uh, Rick Kalowski left the ABC and they said, oh, take this back because if, 
it's still there yep. when the new guy comes in, whoever it's going to yep. be. Um, you don't want to be a victim you of the don't new want, boss. You don't want to be That's, sitting. Yeah. yeah, you don't want to be sitting in the pile and and have it cleared off the desk. So yeah. take it off the desk and then put it back on the desk when there's a person there. Mm. Um, and I just haven't done that yet. But that's very much about the rise of the far right and the alt right um, and their sort of rise to power. And it's a comedy. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> sort of, um, but the whole idea of that is that the left just sort of don't bother to listen to it and don't and so they feel unheard and so then they sort of burrow down a bit deeper um and anytime they try and speak to anybody from the opposite side they get shouted down and so they just talk amongst themselves and it gets more and more insane (laughs) because there's no voice of reason there to even say well what about this how does that doesn't quite work with that um right and if you bring up a fact and everybody agrees with the fact rather than like just presents maybe like some other facts or some things that might qualify where that fact came from or you know how that fact is being interpreted then like you never get like, I mean, that's not going to work for everybody. There's a lot of literature around the fact that, uh, you know, uh, that facts don't win these sort of arguments. There are a lot of them are very emotional and are about other things other than just facts. But if there are, if it is a fact-free zone or if it's just make up your own facts and we'll all agree with your facts, then, I mean, it is. it, it does become quite comical, even though there's terrible things at the heart of it. One of the great things about the modern right, I will say this, is... Like, the left used to pride itself on being welcoming of all. Like, that was kind of part of the left, right? Does not matter what part of life you're from, you're welcome here, we'll exchange ideas, this is a very open house. Mm. And the left has become very prescriptive about what are good opinions and bad opinions and how opinions should be expressed and all these sort of things. And it actually starts building these walls whereas the right has literally for a team that wants to build a wall they have knocked down all walls because (laughs) if you are willing to join their gang it that's the that was the genius of QAnon as a conspiracy is it just let everybody else who had these individual conspiracies bring them to the table but like here's some QAnon stuff but also if you're a 9-11 truther or or, you know 5G whatever like bring that as well COVID Bill Gates microchips that's fine. You're Everyone all can come. Here. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing about like I and I kind of started to understand, especially having the baby, I I started to understand how people could get into that sort of mindset. I don't necessarily, well, I do not have that mindset at all. But for example, <laughs> when we had to give him his first shots when he when he first got vaccinated, I had this perfect little baby who had just started smiling, started laughing, and I was like. I can understand how if somebody, because I Google my own medical symptoms a lot and I'm like, oh, I've got this, I've got cancer, I've got Uh this, like it's Dr. Google, I'm very easily swayed by that. So if I went, oh, I wonder if this will go away if I get him his inoculations, I could very easily find that information online and terrify myself to the point that I would be an anti-vaxxer. I'm not. He is vaccinated and and I'm very, uh, very much a strong believer in vaccinations. But I can definitely understand how people fall into that trap. And if you fall into that trap, then you can fall into a lot more. It it just starts to sort of spiral. Well, these days things are presented like in a way that seems legitimate. Yeah, you can find evidence for anything you want. Right. And like good looking evidence these days and Mm. evidence that will lead to because of algorithms and the internet and all these sort of things, other 
information that supports that opinion. And we all know that we have like biases already in our brains, like emotional biases that we then go, oh, this is great. This confirms something that, you know, the one that I always use is like, it's if you drink red wine, you're always looking for the article that says like two glasses of red wine a day is actually good for you. Yeah. But you, you never read the article that comes out like six months later that says, actually, that's a terrible idea. You're killing yourself. <laughs> like you're just like, nah, they're idiots, those scientists. I'm pretty sure, yeah, alcohol is like a class one carcinogen. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. up there with cigarettes and we're just like, yeah, but it's a little bit healthy. <laughs> Italians are hot. <laughs> Um, so we, we mentioned like this idea of, you know, that you have to be hopeful for the world for the sake of a child, but also you have to look at your life in a different way once you have a child. You know, it's one of those things where there is an element of um, when it's just you, when you, if you're not going to have a kid, you know, there is there's a finality to that at some point. Whereas now you, your career is important, not just because you would like to work on things that you would like to work on, but you know, you want to work so that you can raise your child and, you know, send them to school and feed them and clothe them and all these sort of things. So it changes from being something that you just quite like to do. I'd love to be on some other comedy shows too. Also, this is how I earn my living. Very much. Yeah. That's that. So that's, I, when the baby came along, my anxiety just like went through the roof. So I've been I've been doing that um, the, the the old Prince Harry thing, the EMDR, um, yeah. and just undoing a bunch of stuff. And it's been really good. And I don't know if it's if it's a placebo or whatever. It it has been working for me, and I'm happy. I I'm I'm a big advocate of placebos as well. If it's yeah. not working, as long as I believe it's working and it's and it's getting me more in control of things. Um, and so, yeah, things like everyone hating me, I've, I've started to chip away at that and undo that slightly. Um, and it's an ongoing process, obviously. But, there, yeah, there's definitely a real uh, sense of urgency now to establish myself, I think, and, 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 to, and to hook into something that will, I don't know, be a bit more permanent and... and the fact that I, I I just sort of want to be able to say to my child, yes, we own this house. This is our this is our house, um, rather than a a former football captain's house. Yeah. <laughs> we, we live in we live in the in the our landlord is one of the all time greats. Um, I'll tell you I'll tell you off there. Okay. Is, but he came over the other day. He trimmed the trees, and I was like, hello. <laughs> It's one of my dad's favourite players of all time. <laughs> I mean, to me, that seems better than a house you own yourself. Yeah, to be probably. Honest, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, like there's there's certain things where, and and because I was living because uh, with the mindset that I wasn't going to have a kid, I've bought a lot of stuff. Like I've got a lot of stuff. I've got probably three. 120 pairs of sneakers in my cupboard i've got a bunch of records i've got a bunch of gin and whiskey that if i hadn't bought and just saved that money i'll probably be in a much better position but now i'm like okay great starting from square one you need to start saving for a house you need to start taking shit seriously and so like and and normally that would have just crushed me that kind of pressure but i think now I'm sort of, I've got a couple of ideas for pitching shows. I've got a an idea for a documentary series that's with uh, development at a, it's, it hasn't been sort of signed off yet, but the development heads at that 
um, that production company have said, oh yeah, we really like this idea. We'll, we're going to sort of float it with Netflix, float it with SBS and then come back to you and maybe sign a deal for it. So that, that would be great. Um, yeah, I'm sort of going, okay, well, what can I do? How can I sort of push out and, and, and get stuff made now because it's there's a real sense of urgency now i can't wait for the phone to ring because the last 10 years have proven to me that it doesn't um and i think that's probably good it's got me yeah it's got me moving a bit yeah the phone probably doesn't ring is probably a good message like i mean it does for some people you get to a point where the phone just rings but i think that that is i think people overestimate how many people that is yeah. I think the general perception, even within the entertainment industry, is that there are so many people who just, like, you know, the phone rings for them and they don't have to do anything else. Whereas I think for the majority of people, you still got to hustle. I think it's just the hustle industry. I don't think our industry in Australia is big enough that there are many people who just wait for the phone to ring. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's definitely the case. I, I would have hoped it would ring like a couple of times mm. <laughs> um, that, that mm. maybe somebody was making a, another sketch show or a, a sitcom or something and went, oh, let's, let's see if he picks up. But, <laughs> um, mate, like, honestly, and I don't mean this in any self-aggrandizing way, I reckon my phone's rung like, 10 times in the last 20 years you know like it like occasionally you get lucky and then when you when the phone rings uh, you end up you know as a regular cast member on mad as hell for a decade exactly yeah like but so the the one phone call i have got has been a very good phone call yeah you just need another good phone call exactly you don't need it to ring you don't need 10 more phone calls you just need one other good phone call yeah but i probably need to be putting my business card out there with my phone number on it a bit more Than I do, if that makes sense. <laughs> like I need to be, yeah, reaching out and and working with people and yeah. that sort of stuff. Like I, I actually need to be a lot more proactive. And I and I look at the people that are successful and that do get phone calls, and they probably are more proactive than me, or they were at this stage of their career. So I look at people that I work with and I go, oh, you're getting auditions for all these shows, and they're like, yeah. Because I was out there hustling when I was your age or when I was a bit younger than you. And it's like, oh, okay, I probably shouldn't be so lazy. I mean, I think there's something to that. I think mm. there's something to the idea that you get you get to a point where you're suddenly like, oh, this is my career, this is my life, and if I want it to keep being my career and my life, I'm going to have to hustle a bit and see how I can make all that work. I yeah. think that's cool. It sounds like you're in a point of your life. Do you feel in general that you're just, I mean, having a kid is obviously probably a big key component to it, but it just feels like you're growing up. A bit, yeah. And it, well, that's, that's what Sean said to me, I think. <laughs> I think it was last year after I'd told them all about the pregnancy um, and during the... I think it was during the pandemic. Well, obviously it was during the pandemic. It was last year. Um, but I think it was, yeah, after the season maybe. And Sean said, oh, you're a man now. I was like, I'm, a th- I'm 35. <laughs> I probably should have been a man before now. But still, it was nice. I was like, oh, yeah, I, I, I am. And then I very much wasn't, um, probably for the, the around the start of this year, seeing things not going the way that I thought they were going to go. Um and now I'm getting what, a bit more what manny. Do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I just I had a, I had hoped that the book would do better than it did. I had hoped that sort of 
there would have been a little bit more buzz about it or a bit more, yeah, a bit more press on it or just more people had have read it. But it, but also that it was a victim of the pandemic in that every big book from the year was pushed into that final Christmas quarter, which is where mine initially was placed. Um, and so all of a sudden I'm competing with things like the new Trent Dalton book, which is the biggest seller from like the last five years of Australian books. And this is his follow-up book. And it's like, okay, well, that's going to outsell me. Um, I was up against things like uh, Nat's What I Reckon, the guy's got millions of followers online. Of course, he's going to break all pre-sale records. He's going to destroy me. Um, and if, you, if you're looking for a, a book for a family member, you're probably going to go with something that you really know about rather than just t- taking a chance on a book about somebody that you probably hate if you're, mm. if you're in the audience. That if I you're was, in the audience for it, yeah, it's somebody. And that was that- the other thing that I found. People like lefties, old lefties on Twitter being like, I'm not buying your book because I hate him. I'm like... What? Yeah, what? It's it's a book of in, it, it would embarrass him a lot if 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 this sold a hundred thousand copies, it would do damage to his reputation. Mm, if people were talking about the things I was but saying, I still in the hate book. him. And, and they're I'm like, yeah, I know, but about I, him. I've got principles, and it's like yeah. your principles that you're going to get him elected yeah. again. Is what, <laughs> that's what your principles are. And why are you telling me this? Why are you, t- why are you saying to me, ah, your book's going to fail because I'm not going to buy it. The person that you wrote it for, not buying it. Like, thank you. Thanks for letting me know. At least it kind of prepared me for it. Oh, man. But okay, but that's a real, I mean, of course, when you write a book, you never know how it's going to go, but you have oh, no. hopes and expectations. Well, that's the other thing. It's And again, it's, people that i look up to saying i think it'll do well like sean going i think it'll sell quite well and then it doesn't it's like how is sean wrong sean's not wrong (laughs) Um, like if sean had written the book i think it would have sold very well i feel like it yeah because tony martin's on the front cover of it right so it's like and, and it's another childhood comedy hero to have him read the book and write a quote for it and enjoy it they're like that doesn't get much better than that and so I've still got some, I've got a book on my shelf that I wrote uh, that has <laughs> Tony Martin's cover quote and Sean McCullough's cover quote on the back. Right. I I sort of I do tend to overlook the amazing things that that are in my life in order to look for the next thing that's not there. I sort of look at the empty space in front of me and go, "Where is the thing that's there?" Whereas behind me. I'm in a, a room full of trophies and, and I'm like, oh, there's, yeah, but there's this space on the shelf here that doesn't have a trophy on it. Where's that trophy? That's not fair. My life is terrible. Right. But also, you know, absolutely what you say, you could have like 2 million people read your book and it, them not be as important as reading your book as like Sean McAuliffe and Tony Martin. Reading exactly. Exactly. So it's like I've got. That's the thing. It's again. It's that. It's that cursed monkey claw wish. It's like, oh, people. The the people you want to read the book yeah. will read the book, but no yeah. one else will. Them and only them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you think about death so much? Was death um, something that was present in your thoughts before you had a child, and has it changed since you've had a child? I think I. I know I'm going to die. Um, I sort of coasted through a lot. My grandmother died last year and I couldn't go to her funeral. So I had to watch it on Zoom, which really takes some of the sadness out of it. I'll, I'll tell you that. That's a, 
you watch a, a funeral on Zoom and it's like you're at you're just watching TV and you're like I'm not just connected to this and there's people in the room crying and you can hear them crying on the on the camera, um, but you're like ah oh, this is not getting its hooks into me in the way that I don't, I think it would if I was in that church. My grandma died last year as well and she was um, 97, but she lived mm-hmm. like literally on the same block as my mother for like 80 years of her life or something ridiculous like that, you know, probably more actually. And so real part of our family, like very close grandmother mm-hmm. and just like a wonderful, wonderful woman. And it affected me very much, but I was in a different state, couldn't travel for it, you know, COVID, all that sort of thing. And they didn't even Zoom the funeral oh man i saw my family for the first time since that happened saw my mum like you know because it was her mum who died like for the first time that it happened only like a, a couple of weeks ago so i hadn't seen them for like a year since it happened and what i realized from that engagement was at some stage we're gonna have to have a actual re-morning of it together because mm-hmm. we have moved on in a but without result like it reminded me of how important like sometimes I think we could scoff at the idea of a funeral or whatever but if someone's important having some sort of ceremony or tradition or just some proper way to say goodbye to them I didn't realize until that moment how much we hadn't mourned her properly together and how weird our relationship was going to be because we just kind of were talking about normal stuff like laughing and you know talking about other stuff and the whole time you're like we can't like it would be weird to bring it up now it would be a real downer on the time that we're having but at the same time it's like just there in the background we haven't quite processed it properly yet yeah well i think that's the thing about death is that the better you are in your life the better you do at your at what i think the the reasons for living are um, and the more love you create, the more you touch people's lives, the more devastating your death is. So basically, my end goal with my son is to tear his life apart when I die. That's, <laughs> that's, that's how I know I've done a good right. job if I devastate him. With, with, and you don't want... And I think you should be devastated when somebody that you love dies. Like That's, yeah. that's the point of... Like, that's how you know that you love them. Um, and... I think you can set people up so that they can deal with that in a healthy way, but it's still life-altering and, and world-ending. Um, that's the yeah, that's the weird thing about death. I think that's the one thing I think about with death. It's like okay, so if I'm a shit dad, he'll be okay, but his life will be less like it'll it'll feel less important. <laughs> um, do you worry about? like being remembered you know outside your family like you know in a general sense do you have some is there some part of your ego that would like people to remember who you were i very much for a long time thought that if i died i wouldn't get to go in that in memoriam bit of the logies (laughs) (laughs) and i was like that's bullshit i can't die yet I was going to say, do you reckon you've done enough to get in the in memoriam at the Logies? I think because Sean started weird... saying my name now. I think so. Yeah. They would they would put a little clip and say Tosh Greenslade in a wig and glasses, and people. I don't know. I don't think I'd get a clap though. That's the that's the thing. I don't such think I'd get a, booed. Such a weird. I've never thought about this before because I don't go to the Logies. I'm not a fan of the Logies, but I wonder if that'd prevent me, like. Because I reckon I'm at a point now where, like, if I die, particularly if I die, like, you know, 
soon enough that it's still connected to my career. I'm not suggesting that in 30 or 40 years I'll be some fondly remembered or beloved TV personality. <laughs> but if I die in the next 10, 10 or 20, right, I'm making the in memoriam at the Logies. Would yeah. they put, not put me in because I don't go to the Logies? Oh, no, I reckon you get in. Because oh, people anyway. that don't get to go get in there as well. Like yeah, they have like I, camera people yeah. and stuff in yeah. there. Yeah. And they, it's like, you're not, worth, <laughs> you're not worth a ticket. You don't get to come and, and enjoy the fruits of your labour. <laughs> But when I mean, you die... Yeah, you've made all these people in this room look good. If you, you're the reason they're here, pretty much. Yeah. Um, yeah, the only ones who do your job who are in the room are working at the moment, yeah, shooting exactly. this ceremony for television. Yeah, and they probably won't get in it. Um, <laughs> but if you're a DOP, definitely. Um, yeah, but the, the weirdest bit is when people clap for certain people and not for others. <laughs> it's uh-huh. like, man, you don't want to be the one they don't clap for. But yeah, I think I'm very much in that camp, the, the no clap. <laughs> um, do you have a philosophy of parenthood? Like, have you thought about like what sort of, apart from, you know, wanting to leave your son devastated upon your death, <laughs> have you had any other thoughts about how you might, you know, uh, raise a child? The only thing I want is for him to be generous and want to share his... So I was talking to a friend, I was like, I want him to share. That's the one thing I want him to to learn how to do is to share. And they were like, oh, yeah, but you don't want to be the one that's like, no, no, give the thing that you want to somebody else. I was like, oh, no, yeah, I don't want that. I don't want him to want to have the thing himself and then be forced to give it to somebody else. That's not... I want him to want to give... And want to share the things that he has with other people. And I think from there, everything else will just sort of fall into place. You're just a good person if you're generous. And that's the the only thing, or the main thing I want him to learn is generosity. I don't care he's funny or sporty or, or any of that. All I care about is that he's generous. Well, but isn't, I think, I, may, I think maybe there's even the difference between sharing and generosity because generosity kind of might imply that it could go to that way where you're giving away everything but not keeping anything for yourself whereas sharing to me says more like come and sit at my table yeah come and sleep under my roof here is something that i have it will be more fun than me sitting in the corner playing this game by myself it would be more fun if all of us came and play played this game together to me that feels like sharing and that to me is you know, we're talking about a society, right? I think, yeah, like we get, generosity, you know, not necessarily with, specifically with physical objects, mm. generosity with his time, with his empathy, with his emotions, generosity sort of across the board is the, is the thing I would want him to be. Um, so I, I would want him to be generous enough to see that kid that, that has been abandoned by his friendship group in primary school and go, well, come come and play with us, even if you're you might be the weird kid or you might have deserved that or I don't know I can't even remember back that far but if yeah seeing somebody and and wanting to give what you have and not necessarily even if you don't have anything physical to give them to give them yeah time and attention really uh, we have to finish up because I can hear my dog barking at something mysterious <laughs> upstairs in the house and I need to go and work out what that is. I've, I, I, you might have noticed I grabbed my phone a second ago because I've got uh, security cameras oh, at right. the house and so on my phone I can see what's going on. So I, I was like, oh, well, maybe there's someone at the door or whatever. But no, just mysteriously, continuously barking. So well, hopefully I you don't get to... murdered before this goes out. <laughs> well, <laughs> selfish. I mean, it'd be a good bump for your career though, right? Yeah, the last... Well, like, no, because I mean, it wouldn't might, get... This might be the 
bump that you're looking for. This yeah, is they the, might just come in and see the see my name on the thing and just delete the recording. Maybe they came in for that express yeah. purpose. It's Francis yeah. behind me. You're he only just appears getting, in the zoom behind me. You're only a, getting murdered so they can get you out of the way. <laughs> no, I'm thinking this is more like the tape that Eminem's got in his car in Stan. You know, oh, where yeah. he's listening, and he, you know, it's like the final thing where he drives off the bridge. This is. It's probably as self pitying and as windy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Sean, I wrote you. <laughs> okay, uh, three final questions sure. and we're done. Uh, so, uh, as close as I have to a life philosophy is a little thing that I have on my desk. It says, uh, what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? And so, it's just basically meant to remind me that, and I, I thought of this, like with Bo Burnham's special a mm. lot, which was that he just made something that was inside his head and then just put it on like he didn't look at it you don't you can't look at Bo's new special and go ah he i see i see like what he's trying to do he's like trying to do what this person did or this person did no he's doing something that is completely his own creation and it's amazing he must have never once like thought when he was making choices in that this will be a good this will get a few more of the kids in you know there's not, none of that about what he's doing if you were guaranteed of success, what would you attempt to do? I think probably what I'm trying to do at the moment, which is getting my own shows up. Um, that or or moving to LA. Because I think the one thing about America, I think America is a deeply flawed second world country. Like it's a developing nation. And, and you, you can't... Yeah, now it's third world. <laughs> um, it's dropped. But... There's no there's no safety net over there at all, but there's also no ceiling, and I feel like there's a bit of a ceiling in Australia, mm-hmm. just because just purely based on the fact that there's not enough people here to be to make everything popular and for everyone to have the job that they want. But if you can sort of climb the heights of of America, there's no stopping. Like obviously, lots of people have fallen off, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, there's there's really no ceiling to the heights you can climb to over there um, in terms of the work and the, the money. Um, <laughs> but yeah, essentially, yeah, I'd say I'd, I'd either, I'd be doing, well, I am, I am pitching stuff at the moment. I am trying to get my own shows up. I am trying to branch out a bit from mad as hell. Um, and a lot of the feedback I get at the moment is, can you get Sean involved somehow? So <laughs> maybe there needs to be some sort of stepping stone where, I ask him to, I don't know, produce or just write the whole thing for me. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you um, need a little, just a little. Yeah, a little yeah, bump. Might, yeah, just a little Sean bump. Yeah. I think, yeah, that. It, it would be, or opening that wine bar. <laughs> Korean I mean, fried chicken, guys. Yeah. yeah. Natural wine and fried chicken. That's already a thing. <laughs> Bell's Hot Chicken's already doing it. But mine would be a different kind of fried chicken. <laughs> and it would look like a Japanese convenience store. Because I'm a loser. Uh, all right. Two more questions and we are done. If you could have, like, if I had a magic wand and I could just grant you any ability in the world, the ability to just do anything. You don't have to do your 10,000 hours. You can just immediately do it. What would it be? Uh, I think I, I feel like everyone says this, but for me the reason is different. But just the ability to speak any language fluently, um, 
mainly because I really like it because I speak a little bit of Japanese. I've been learning just to try and put my brain back together after doing all of the you learn a script on this Monday night and perform it on Tuesday and then it's gone and you have to learn something else for Thursday location day. It puts holes in your brain. Um, and I was like, so, I need so to do something like, long term. Could you please uh, present the scripts in kanji from yeah. now on? <laughs> but if you like, I I started learning Japanese because I was like, well, if I learn a language, I can sort of start to put long-term knowledge into my brain and start mm-hmm. to retrain it to hold on to things because my memory's not great either just because of that. Um, but I really like the feeling when you are in another country and then you speak a bit of the language and they're like, wow, that's really impressive. We think you're good. I'll just use it for that. I, I mean, just- that moment, it's like the, have you, I hope, and if you've not, and maybe you hate it, but no, but you know what? But just say what you want to say, Will, which is it reminds me of The Princess Bride. Have you seen The Princess Bride? Yes, yeah. So the, the famous sword fighting scene and when Wesley reveals that he is not uh, left-handed, right? Like, you know, and in that moment where you're just like, he's been sword fighting so well already and then suddenly he swaps over to his other hand. I have this like recurring dream where I'm playing cricket for Australia and then I reveal in a big match the old switcheroo that I'm actually better like batting <laughs> the other side and this feels like it's tapping into that same energy yeah. which is like you know you're like yeah I can nail English but I'm in your country I can also nail your language well I do whenever we, whenever I travel I try and learn a bit like mm. I so I can speak they can mm. at least order in a restaurant or do things mm. like that or ask where certain things are so I just learn a little bit of the language, but then the problem is sometimes you use a, the wrong, yeah. the wrong bit, and it's a little bit too good, and then they, they expect oh, yeah. you to know how to speak it, and then you're like, oh no, I'm a liar. I've been <laughs> I've been exposed. I would like <laughs> that exposure to go away. Yeah, I would like to never have to say, I'm sorry, I have no idea what you're saying. I, I <laughs> only know those two things. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you, I have a trip on a time machine that you can take. You can go to the future. You can go to the past that is a round trip. You can go anywhere in history, visit something. You can go and visit yourself at a point in your life and, you know, change a circumstance. I don't I don't care where you go. It's it's, it's your trip, but I'd like to know where, where you would go. If I can't come back? Oh, no, if I can, no, if you I can have come to come back. back. Yeah. If I have you to have come to back. come back. Okay. Yeah. That because that changes things. Because otherwise, I would just go back to 1985. I'll take my partner and my kid to 1985, and I would just let him grow up in the same world then, I did. And you're like, I know this world. Yeah, exactly. It's actually, you know what? What a great idea for a time travel movie you've just come up with. Because the it. idea of somebody who just thinks the best way to raise my kid, like I loved when I was a kid, and so they use time travel to transport their family back to that period of time. But obviously you've got the knowledge of like, you know, what happened during that period of time. But you don't have like the internet necessarily early on or any of these sort of things. So yeah. like it's not like you can just Google what happened on a specific date. You have to kind of remember. Anyway, I've got a project for you. We can talk about it <laughs> off air. Anyway, if I can't do thing. that, if I can't do that, I would go back like two weeks ago, buy a Tats Lotto ticket, stick it in a book in on the bookshelf and then come back to now, go and get it and cash it in. And then I'll buy a house for my son to live in. That's basically... <laughs> That's pretty much it. Like I, I, I would, yeah, or I would go back and, and buy 10 Bitcoin. 
Yeah. And, so and basically, this is all about you just like to buy a house. Basically, Please. or just have, I have a lot of money. In fact, I'm going to sell your time machine. <laughs> You've made a mistake. You've gone to the bathroom. I've sold. <laughs> I've swapped your time machine with someone for their house. I would just want. That's the thing. Like money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you a lot of space. It can yeah, buy you so much. It can time. buy you a house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it can buy you time as well. It can buy the the fact that you don't have to work any side jobs, or, or you can really focus on the things you want to do that pay you absolutely nothing so you can hustle a lot harder i think if you're rich it, it just it's the, that's why i think especially uh before well i'd say the last five years or so a lot of actors are just they come from middle class backgrounds because they can they've got that space and i did like i i, I, grew, I went to a private school when i was a kid like it's it buys you so much space and so much breathing space. Tosh, this has been great. ScoMo Diaries is the name of your book. People should buy that. It's not too late because it's no. I know. Look, it's still there. It's still it's it's still cheap there on Amazon. And, and it, but also it's about a specific period of time. I think maybe even the idea that now we've got some distance to that period of time, it might be fun for people to go back and because so much happens yeah. in the world these days. You'll go back and there'll be a whole bunch of things where you're like, oh, I, I, I forgot this event happened. That's what I mean. I, it's hard, it to, when it's I was hard to remember it. that Scott Morrison went to Hawaii. Yeah. Like, so much seems to have happened since then. It wasn't that long ago that like a major like bushfire went down and our prime minister fled to another country. And yet so much seems to have happened since then. That seems like ancient history. Yeah. It's also full of jokes. That's the other thing. I've so just tried many to jokes. put as many jokes as I could into it. So even if you don't really like politics... Hopefully there's enough jokes in there for you to enjoy I it. really want to know what my dog is barking at because it continues. <laughs> so we are going to have to finish this up. But thank you so much for doing the show today, mate. Thank you. Thank you.